0: All right, John chapter 11. Some of you guys may remember a friend of mine, Dustin Salter, campus minister with RUF for I think nine years. Uh, back in November fell. He was just riding his bike in his neighborhood and um, didn't have a helmet and just fell and suffered a severe brain injury, um, languished in a coma for quite a while, eventually came out of the coma, but was in a vegetative state. Um, you may not know, but he passed away last week, and so I had to, well, I hadn't to, but I wanted to and was able to attend the funeral, Wendy and I, down at Fort Worth. Um, and it's fitting, you know, that we're going to talk about John chapter 11. I think John chapter 11 is one of the the passages that helps us the most when we go through those sorts of things. We want to know what does Jesus think about our suffering and where is he and rather than just have to wonder about that kind of stuff the Bible gives us this beautiful picture of the way Jesus approaches the death of his friend Lazarus and it's it's a picture that is not only comforting that is not only encouraging to us um, but it's a picture that John says reveals God's glory. That's what Jesus himself says in this passage. But you know, you know the two themes that came out at that funeral, and, and probably should be at every funeral, uh, the, the, one, the one thing that you heard over and over again was, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I, I remember as I was, you know, there's a lot of people there and... Um, you know, we were kind of sitting in the middle of the row and kind of back far, So we weren't so close to, you know, kind of what was going on up front. And I don't know. I, I felt like I was if I, if I wasn't connecting so much with what was going on. I'll tell you, there was a moment and several of my friends who were there have written emails saying the same thing. But there's a moment when your friends, my friends that I that have been my buddies for years, one of my roommates in seminary, who used to do RUF over at Vanderbilt, um, and and some of my other RUF buddies, bearing this casket out of the church with my friend inside. Those are those moments when you say, this should not be. I mean, maybe we get used to old guys being pallbearers, but it shouldn't be my friends that I hang out with and enjoy hanging out with bearing a casket with one of their friends in it. And in those times, it's important that we know that Jesus is both one who weeps with those who weep, and he's one who rages at death and says, this was never meant to be, and I am committed to doing something about it. And that's what we see in this passage in, in John chapter 11, I want us to, to read this text together. We'll read most of it. We'll actually, uh, as we get through this, I'll, I'll pick up the end part in a little bit. Um, but, but look with me, starting at verse 1 of Luke chapter, sorry, John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. You Remember we talked about them last week. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I am going there to wake him up. His disciples, who were pretty clueless to understand what he's saying, replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Judea, they think they're going back to Judea to die. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. My little boys love that. In the King James, it says, Lord, he stinketh. And so we read our little children's Bible, and they don't include that little verse, but I always put that in there, and they just roll on the ground. Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) It's a little humorous moment in 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 a pretty, you know, intense story. Then Jesus said, verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And let him go. We'll stop there for now. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask you to help us. Not just to read this passage. But to take it to heart. To to see and to embrace by faith. Who you really are. That we would be greatly encouraged. And be given great courage. To know and to believe you are the resurrection and the life. Help us to believe that in Jesus' name. Amen. How does Jesus approach the tomb of his friend? That's what we're going to look at tonight. And the the three points I guess I'll make with that is he approaches with concern for the people that are there, the mourners. He approaches the tomb of his friend with his own tears. Concern for his friends? Concern for the people mourning, but he approaches the tomb with his own tears. And finally, he approaches the tomb with rage. The NIV obscures that a little bit, but we'll talk about that. It's clearly here, and it's one of the most important things to see in this passage. But first, look at Jesus' concern for his other friends besides Lazarus. Now, you may say, well, that's all you know, fine and good, but the, the real problem here is that he comes and he... He seems to kind of ignore Lazarus. He loves Lazarus, and yet he hears that he's sick, and he doesn't run immediately back to Bethany to help. Did that bother you? Well, it bothered Mary and Martha. First thing both of them say is, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. But I want you to understand, if you do the math, how many days he'd been gone, and from there, when Jesus left, you realize that by the time the messenger came to Jesus... And when Lazarus actually died, Jesus, even if he had left the moment the messenger came to him, would not have gotten there before Lazarus died. It may help you. You know, he's not being callous here. Lazarus is going to die. But Jesus recognizes that this is an opportunity not just to do a miracle and keep somebody from dying or heal somebody who's sick, or even just an opportunity to raise somebody from the dead. This is an opportunity to reveal God's glory and to bring glory to the Son of God, Jesus himself, to reveal who he really is. And so he waits. And, you know, one of the things I hope has been coming out this semester as we've studied who is the real Jesus, is Jesus often does things that seem rather peculiar, but usually, at the bottom of why he's doing that, it has something to do with him revealing his glory, and helping us to understand that he is not—he is not predictable, but he is not—he's—he's he's not the God that we think he is sometimes, and that's that. I think that's going on here as well. But but look, look at this—the way he responds to Martha and Mary is very interesting, and shows us his concern, but shows us that his concern takes different approaches in the way he deals with these two mourning women. Both of them say virtually identical things to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet the way he responds to them in verse 25, and then later down in verse 33, are really different. And, and one of the points I think that John is trying to get us to see here. Is that Jesus? Jesus is wise enough. Jesus is the wise counselor. He is the one who knows what we need and loves us in the way that we really need. He does. You see it so clearly here. With Martha, he has a theological discussion. Now, some of you may think, well, who needs that? You know, what I love about this picture is that Jesus weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. I love that verse. You should love that verse, but that's not all that happens in this story. With Martha, Jesus gives truth, a theological discussion. With Mary, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff, really. He weeps. Both of those are necessary. Both of those are important. In fact, you can't love people very well at all without both truth and truth tears. Yet the fact is, we tend to be more comfortable with one or the other. We tend to be more comfortable giving one or the other. We tend to be more comfortable receiving one or the other. We tend to default to our comfort zone. Some of us are more thinkers. Some of us are more feelers. But Jesus models for us that to truly love and to truly love those who are grieving, we need both. There is a time for speaking truth, reminding people of of what is true and what is real. There is a time for shutting up and weeping with those who weep. Who was Jesus? Which one was Jesus? Was he a thinker or a feeler? Well, the answer is, of course, he was both. And he was wise enough to be versatile. And here's the good news. He still is. Jesus, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the Jesus you see here, who knows when you need words of truth and when you need tears, is still the same Jesus. Are you a fixer or a feeler? I I put some stuff in here. I mean, to, to pursue one of these without the other is really not to love very well. We may feel like we're loving well because we feel like we're doing something that we feel we're good at. But you have, to try, you have to try to do both of these things. You can't really help people if you never tell them the truth. You can't really help people very much if all you do is tell them the truth and they never know that you care. But Jesus is both. So Jesus approaches the tomb with concern for his friends. Jesus cares. But Jesus knows that ultimately what they need more than just his presence is they need the resurrection and the life. And so thankfully, Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene and say, oh boy, I feel really bad about this. (laughs) Now that's actually, he does show up and, and express, I feel bad about this. And that's helpful. But he does more. He doesn't just empathize with his friends. He shows us his own sorrow. Now, this is, this is pretty remarkable because here, Jesus, the Bible says, is God himself. He's perfect, and yet he weeps. Now, for some of us, there's a whole sermon in that. He's perfect, and he weeps. What does that mean? That means it must not be sinful to cry. I could preach that sermon to myself. I had a long, long period. five-year period of my life where I, I didn't cry at all. And, um, you know, it shouldn't be that way. Jesus weeps because as he looks at the situation, and you just see, feel the path, the pathos of this. Um, Mary is weeping. And all these people that have come with her are all weeping. And Jesus he's just he's just touched by this and it's his friend that he loves who's now lying dead in a tomb and and it just hits him like it hit me at that, at Dustin's funeral it shouldn't be this way guys if the brokenness of this world bothers you think think what it must do to the heart of Jesus I remember the moment uh, on 9-11 when I was just feeling so overwhelmed at this thought of what has happened. And then this thought came to me and it was like, boom. If I'm sad, how must Jesus feel? I know that God didn't create bodies to be crushed and pulverized by buildings coming down around them. But Jesus really knows that. Jesus knows what it's like to look upon this creation. The Bible says that God created the world through Jesus. He was there at the creation. He knew what it was to look out upon this world and say, this is very good. You and I can only imagine what that's like, and we can't imagine it very well. When Jesus walked around in this world and saw people broken and weeping, he knew, he knew what it was like to look at this world where there were no tears. And still he walked 33 years. No wonder he's described as a man of sorrows. How could he not be a man of sorrows? I think sometimes in our grief and in our arrogance we feel like we care about the world's problems more than God. That we that we're more concerned about suffering in this world than God is. Don't you ever believe that? Jesus weeps because he is bothered. He doesn't just weep so that he can fit in. He doesn't just weep so that people will feel like, "Oh, isn't that nice?" He weeps because he himself is sad. Now, th- you know, this is one of the things, it's hard to understand how the perfect, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God can be sad. But he is. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah says that even now as he looks at this world, the best image to understand what God feels when he looks at this world is this image Isaiah uses of a pregnant woman in the midst of labor pain, screaming in agony. If you ever think that God is just passively sitting up on his throne, not very concerned about what's going on in his world, I will tell you that you've, you've really fallen away from Christianity. and You've fallen into views of God that are are more in line with, with other religions. I mean, it's Buddha, the Buddha that's always pictured looking at the world doing what? Smiling. Buddha looks at the world and he smiles. Allah looks at the world and he's so sovereign and so powerful, he's really indifferent. Jesus looks at the world and he weeps. And in that is all The difference in the world. This isn't supposed to be this way. He cares about those who are suffering. He can fully empathize with them, but he himself is touched. He approaches the tomb of his friend with tears as well because lament is appropriate. Tears are appropriate for Christians. Now I put some stuff down here. I don't have time to go all all through this whole thing. That's why I gave you some pretty detailed notes about this. There's a a wonderful article. You could probably get it on Interlibrary Loan if you wanted from the Calvin Theological Journal. Nicholas Walterstorff, who taught for a number of years at Calvin College, is now, I think he finished his career at Yale, uh, wrote an amazing article after he himself lost his son in a mountain climbing accident. Um, If God is sovereign, why lament? And he says this, I think it's very helpful. Lament is not just complaining It's a big difference between lament and complaint. And and let me just go into this a little bit here. Because Jesus is, is offering lament here. Lament, Walter Storff says, is giving voice to the suffering that accompanies deep loss. And true lament has three parts. Now listen to the three parts. True lament, to voice our suffering, we have to name it and own it as part of our story. We have to enter into it and say, I have suffered loss. I'm going to quit pretending. But second, true lament is not just the voicing of suffering. It is a cry to God for deliverance. And the cry of, why, oh God, is this happening? I don't understand. I can't see your hand in this darkness. We cry out to God for deliverance, he says, from suffering and from the threat of concluding that life is meaningless. Lament is saying, life seems meaningless, help me God. Help me to give voice to this suffering and to direct it to you, even in my confusion. And he says, without the crying out to God, giving voice to suffering is not lament, but merely complaint. I, 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 when I was reading over that again today, I was like, oh, that's a very important point. I think sometimes we feel like we're so in touch and honest about our angst and about our sorrow and about the brokenness of the world that we're really good at complaining. But lament is not just complaining. Lament is directing our gaze to God and crying out to Him as we give voice to suffering. And finally, true lament, he says, has one more component, an expression of the endurance of faith. In other words, he says in the Psalms, this is expressed by this word, little word, but an important word, yet. Where the the psalmist will give voice to suffering, cry out to God, and then say, yet, this is true. I will hold on to God's faithfulness that was revealed in the past, or I will hold on to the hope that God will remain true to his word and his promises and his character. So lament involves all three of those things. It's not just it's not just giving voice to suffering but it's god directed and and he goes on in this article and he says it's really difficult for christians to hold on to all three of those parts and he gives some examples of different people some people you know can can give voice can can have some of those three parts but not all of them And even Calvin himself, Walter Store says, doesn't fully give voice to all three of those aspects to lament. But I, I like this last little bit here, this last paragraph that I put down there for you. He points out at the end of the article how it is appropriate to cry out when things fail to reach their creational purpose. Because God himself expresses the desire in his benediction over the creation, his saying, this is good. And he says, be fruitful and multiply, and God expresses His own desire for the creation to come to this fruition of bringing out all the God-glorifying potential that He built into it. And when that doesn't happen, when that fails to be realized, it is appropriate to cry out to God. And in doing so, we join God in His cry. He goes on and and talks about this. But Jesus here is giving dignity to lament. It's a very important point. Final point on this. Why does Jesus approach the tomb with tears? Because Jesus is the God with scars. Jesus is the God with scars. He embraced that. He knew that to come into this world, his suffering was not just at the cross. It was suffering, redemptive suffering, for Jesus to walk this earth, to see this brokenness, to touch those who had been racked and ravaged by the fall. It broke his heart. This uh, poem you may have heard before, written right after World War I, Edward Shil- Shilido, I, I I can give you the whole poem if you want. It's very powerful. You can just look it up on the internet. You can Google it and find it. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Do you understand? Christians have a God with scars. But Jesus doesn't just weep. Jesus approaches the tomb of his friend with rage. Now, in the rage, Jesus is revealing what he came to do. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that in the tears we see who Jesus is, but in the rage we see what he came to do. Yet the translators most all the translators are afraid to really translate this as strong as the Greek is. The only translator, actually, of all the translations I looked at, that gets anywhere close to what the Greek is saying here is Eugene Peterson in the message, where the ver- the, this word, it's in verse 33, it's later in verse 38. The NIV translates it deeply moved and troubled. Eugene Peterson in the message says quaking with rage. That's that's what's being talked about here. It's a word that actually is pretty common in Greek literature outside of the Bible. It's well attested what it means. It comes from this idea of a war horse snorting in rage as it's about to plunge into battle. So the deeply moved and troubled is not Jesus over and a quarter kind of fretting. What am I going to do? No, It's, it's him just you know this the anger is so it's like holding it in but it's still breaking out as he approaches the tomb and that is really important why is he angry i don't think it makes sense to see this kind of emotional reaction with jesus if all he's thinking about is lazarus's death Because he knows, you know, way back when he first heard of Lazarus being sick, he's been planning to raise Lazarus from the dead. That isn't something that comes upon him as he stands at the side of the tomb. He's been planning that all along. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that he's going to come forth. He prays out loud, he says, so that these people may believe. But he has no doubt. He's not... Raging merely because Lazarus has died. He's raging at death itself. He's raging at all of the funerals that he's seen and will see. He's raging at all of the brokenness that he's tasted. And he goes after it. He doesn't just raise Lazarus from the dead. What you need to see to fully understand this passage is that when Jesus decides to raise Lazarus from the dead, he seals his own death warrant. You see that in what the disciples say, right? When he tells them that he wants to go back to Judea, they think he's crazy. And when he won't be deterred, Thomas says, well, let's go with him and we'll die with him too. They recognize how serious the situation is. His ministry has you know, gathered enough controversy by this point that he's been hanging away from Jerusalem. Now he goes to a place that John clearly tells us is only two miles away from Jerusalem. Not only that, but people have come from Jerusalem to the city. So there's people all around that are going to watch him do this, that are going to go back to Jerusalem, they are going to talk about it. The authorities are going to hear about it, and they're going to take action. And as a matter of fact, in the last part of this chapter, that's exactly what they do. The very next section that I didn't read, the NIV subtitle, is the plot to kill Jesus. This is the event that drives the Jewish leadership to say he has to be killed. And Jesus is not naive to that. He knows that. But as he stands there at the tomb, he quakes with rage. He's like a war horse about to plunge into battle and he says, let's go. He's committed to the confrontation that will seal his death warrant and break the power of death itself. You see, he knows that unless he himself dies, that Lazarus' resurrection is only temporary. And Jesus is not Content with temporary healing. I love this part from The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. When Aslan is explaining to Susan and Lucy what happened. Why is it that the stone table cracked? I love these lines. He says, Though the white witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. That when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Jesus is not content to merely raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not content to merely give Martha truth and Mary tears. He is committed to death beginning to work backwards. And that's what he does one of the most powerful articles I've ever read in my life is by B.B. Warfield. You wouldn't know B.B. Warfield, I don't think, but you should. His works are well worth reading. He was a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, end of the 1800s, early 1900s. And one of his most incredible articles was an article he wrote, I think, for the Princeton Theological Journal called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And I have to share it with you because I don't think you'll read it. You might if I share it with you. If I tell you about it, you won't read it. If I give you enough quotes, maybe you'll search it out. And that would be one of the best things you could do. Um, But he he goes into this quite a lot and, and makes some just incredibly powerful points that I want to share with you. He says it's so important that you see that Jesus is the one who rages against death. He says this, what John tells us here in John 11 is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. He did respond to the spectacle of human sorrow with tears, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was rage. The expression, even of this rage, however, was strongly curbed. John tells us he raged in spirit, and it says that in the Greek text. Internally, in other words. But that his internal rage was visible to those around him who heard the snort. Whoa. Is this the Jesus that you picture? Is this, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild? We have such a silly, romanticized view of Jesus, and then we wonder why we feel like we need to take control of our lives. There may be a connection there. We can't even begin to imagine how angry Jesus really was and still is at death. Warfield goes on, why did the sight of the wailing of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus, and his rage is mentioned twice, as an indispensable element in the story and is the key to understand what's really going on here. He says, The wailing of the people brings home to him the violent tyranny of death, and he contemplates the general misery of the whole human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. And, quote, He is gazing into the skeleton face of the world and tracing everywhere the reign of death. How could he not rage how could he not be overwhelmed it is death that is the object of his wrath and behind death him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy tears of sympathy may fill his eyes but this is incidental his soul is held by rage And he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated miracle, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus. Listen to this. At the heart of Jesus, here you have the heart of Jesus as he wins salvation. Do you wonder what Jesus was feeling when he was suffering on a cross? He was not feeling sorry for himself. He was raging and battling against death. And here in the story of Lazarus, Jesus uncovers a little bit of his heart. If you want to know what really moves Jesus, it's rage against death. When Jesus wins our salvation, Warfield says, it's not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression and under the power of these feelings has wrought our redemption. Colossians chapter 2 describes what Jesus did on the cross as triumphing over the powers and the principalities, publicly humiliating them. It's not just, okay, I beat you, you know, like, you know, like the Roman gladiators, you know, and they beat the one and then, you know, you got the sword at the guy's throat and the emperor does, you know, this or that, you know, and hopefully, you know, he gives him mercy. No, it's, it's not that at all. Jesus, Jesus enjoys publicly humiliating the powers and the principalities. And that's righteous. And Christians Christians need to understand and embrace the heart of Jesus. And generally, I think what we mean by that is we need to, we need to love people more. But part of what that means is we need to rage at death and suffering more. To truly love people, to truly love this world is so much more than to just weep for it. It is to rage against the enemy. And Jesus, Jesus is the one who doesn't just vanquish Satan, he makes a public spectacle of him. Wow. So how can we still be such cowards? We have such a one who fights for us. We have such a one who takes our cause as his own. Who battles against the one who lies to you and tells you that you're a piece of crap. Jesus takes that personally, rages against that. Does that matter to us? Does that mean anything to us? this just blows me away, and I think this is at the very end, right? In his weeping and his rage, we see Jesus accomplishing, literally accomplishing, the earning of our salvation. This last little quote from Warfield, he says, when we observe him exhibiting his human emotions, we are gazing upon the very process of our salvation. Every manifestation of the truth of our Lord's humanity is an exhibition of the reality of our redemption. In his sorrows, he was bearing our sorrows. And having passed through a human life like ours, he remains forever able to be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. The Hebrews, the book of Hebrews makes much of this. That Jesus knows what you've suffered. Jesus knows what you're afraid of. Jesus sympathizes, but Jesus does more than sympathize. He rages, And he takes on death. And here's the point. If Jesus has done battle with your real enemy, if Jesus has done battle with your real enemy, what do you have to be afraid of? If you have have this guy on your side who doesn't back down You can be inconvenienced, can't you? (laughs) You could be a little more patient, couldn't you? We could sacrifice something, couldn't we? What are we afraid of? How can we be afraid if this one loves us like this? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not keep your emotions hidden so that we would wonder what you think. But you made it abundantly clear that you love us and that you hate sin and brokenness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to go there, to embrace your love, But to also welcome, welcome your righteous anger. Lord, we are so, we are so soft on our sin. But Lord, you are not. And rather than that threatening us, Lord, may that give us hope today. When we feel so burdened and so in bondage to so many things, to know Jesus, that you, you do not look on that passively. You do not look on that half-heartedly. But even now, you rage against the things that hold your image bearers in bondage. And We pray, Lord, that we would take great encouragement from that. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that you would do battle with the enemy of our soul that you would do battle with our flesh, that you would do battle with our unbelief. Because we are so insufficient for the battles that need to be fought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.